Welcome to the It's Your Turn podcast, brought to you by NextLeader, where we advance ideas about leadership, personal and organizational development, and Bible-centered leadership with a special focus on the next generation. If you're a next generation leader, we want to remind you that the best way to reach your goals is to reach your potential. Get started today. It's your turn. If you're not a next generation leader, you know other people invested in you along the way, and it's your turn to give back. In just a moment, I'll be turning the microphone over to Steve Moore, the host of It's Your Turn. Steve serves the Association for Biblical Higher Education, or ABHE, as Executive Director of NextLeader. But first, a few words about today's show. In our first segment, Idea Watch, Steve will share why organization-wide mentoring programs rarely work, along with a practical skill that will help you attract and engage the right people for mentoring relationships. In our second segment, Quick Reads, we'll give you a sample from Steve's latest book, Why Dead People Make the Best Mentors and How to Learn from Them. In our final segment of today's program, Steve will share a few lessons on resilience that he learned from a historical mentoring relationship with Winston Churchill. Thanks for joining us for It's Your Turn. Now, here's Steve. Greetings from Atlanta, and thanks for tuning into the very first episode of It's Your Turn, the Next Leader podcast. You heard in the intro about our format, but I'd like to say just a few words about that before we dive in. We call the first segment of the podcast Idea Watch. I read a lot, and I'm always on the lookout for tips and tools that I can pass along to others. So in each episode, I'll share something from my gleanings that I hope will provoke fresh thinking, maybe offer practical insights or give you a life hack that will make you more productive. In this episode's Idea Watch, I'd like to pass along a few tips about mentoring. A principle I have found helpful is that mentoring relationships last longer, and they are more effective when the person being mentored plays a primary role in choosing the mentor. Now, that's not a real complicated idea, but I want to repeat it just to make sure you're tracking with me. Mentoring relationships last longer, and they are more effective when the person being mentored plays a primary role in choosing the mentor. This dynamic explains why most mentoring programs that assign mentors to mentees underperform. And that's true regardless of the context. It could be in a college, a church, or some kind of ministry. And it can be harder than you think to see the correlation between the assigning of mentors and mentees to the underperformance of the program. And the reason this correlation can be difficult to spot is because some percentage of the mentor-mentee matches are going to work just based on random chance. And that percentage is going to vary, but it can be high enough, 25, even 30 percent, so you don't see the correlation. Now, one of the common questions people have in response to this principle is if the success of mentoring is directly correlated with the selection of a mentor by a mentee, how would I get a prospective mentee to choose me as a mentor? And I would say one of the answers is by combining what has been described as the affirmation of potential with the opportunity for development. I want to say that again. 
the combination of the affirmation of potential with the opportunity for development. When you affirm the potential of another person, this is especially true with a next generation leader, and you do it in a timely and specific way, you open a doorway for the development of that potential and you create an opportunity for a life-shaping experience and increase the chances that that person will be open to your input as a mentor. You can probably think of a time when someone did this in your life. And if so, you remember how meaningful, how powerful, how life-shaping it can be. Well, it's your turn to do this for a next generation leader. In our second segment, Quick Reads, I will typically share a few of the big ideas from a book I've found helpful, and this will be supported by a more comprehensive overview of the book that we'll post on the Idea Portal website, ideas.nextleader.com. And that will include a brief summary of the book, followed by the best chapter, the best quotes, the best illustration, the best idea, and the best takeaway. This month, I want to give you a little more information on my latest book, Why Dead People Make the Best Mentors and How to Learn from Them. We're offering this book as a free gift for subscribing to the Next Leader Idea Portal. You can get it in two formats, as an ebook or as an audiobook. Now, I want to read a few paragraphs from the introduction to help you understand the premise of the book. In this short book, you will learn the skills you need to engage high-capacity leaders in a personalized mentoring relationship. If you apply what you learn in these few pages, you will be able to ask world-class leaders to mentor you, and the answer will be yes every time, guaranteed. The reason they will always say yes is because they are dead, is one of the reasons dead people make the best mentors. I want to help you master the skill of historical mentoring. The principles you will learn for engaging historical mentors in the following short chapters fit in the category of anyone could, but most people don't. It doesn't take an above-average IQ to apply this strategy. In fact, you may find parts of it naively simplistic, but I promise if you purposefully tap into the wisdom and experience of history's greatest leaders, you will find a wellspring of encouragement, motivation, and wise counsel that can catapult you forward in your developmental journey. It has been said, if you want to be a great leader, hang around with great leaders. Historical mentoring will enable you to hang around the greatest leaders of all time. Once again, that was just a few paragraphs from the introduction. Now, chapter 2 of the book is entitled, Experience is Not the Best Teacher. And it's probably, in terms of content, uh, the chapter you would least expect in this kind of a book. So I want to give you a taste of it, but I'll do it by way of the audiobook. Here's the first few pages of chapter 2, Experience, is not the best teacher. Chapter 2. Experience is not the best teacher. I've gained no wisdom, no insight, no mellowing. I would make all the same mistakes again. 
Woody Allen. I once heard a speaker share about watching his toddler from across the room as the little guy put a screwdriver into an electric socket. It was one of those surreal moments where you observe but have no time to intervene. Before his dad could say anything to dissuade the little fellow, sparks flew and the electric shock brought a river of tears. Thankfully, the screwdriver had a rubberized handle that prevented serious injury. But like any father, he ran across the room, embraced his son, and spoke words of comfort and consolation. As the boy calmed down, he looked into the eyes of his father and said, with a note of frustration, It did the same thing yesterday. We have all heard the saying, experience is the best teacher. But it's not true. I'm sure you know more than one person who, well into adulthood, makes the same foolish mistakes over and over again. Perhaps one of the most extreme examples comes from Woody Allen, who said in an interview approaching his 70th birthday in November 2005, I've gained no wisdom, no insight, no mellowing. I would make all the same mistakes again. Experience by itself is not a reliable instructor. It must be accompanied by conscious reflection with a commitment to learning. I've often encountered people who read biographies, but when asked to identify the most important lesson they learned from the life experiences of the historical mentor, they have nothing to say. Simply reading about the experiences of others is not likely to produce life lessons. You have to intentionally reflect on the experiences of others to learn from them. Why does this seem so rare? If you haven't learned how to reflect on and learn from your own experiences, it is unlikely you will be able to learn vicariously from the experiences of others, dead or alive. Over the years, I have cultivated a cycle or rhythm of reflection to help me learn from my own experiences. This has proven to be a great help giving me insight into the experiences of others, including historical mentors. In fact, I've tried to help others benefit from historical mentoring in the past, but have been frustrated by the meager results. In reflecting on those experiences, I've come to believe a major part of the problem was I did not emphasize the skill of reflective learning in one's own life experience as a means for sharpening the skills required to learn from the experiences of others. Well, I hope that whets your appetite for this book. It includes a step-by-step -step process for gleaning insights from historical mentors and two chapters that show how I have applied this process in my mentoring relationship with John Newton, as well as A.T. Pearson. John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor, is of course famous for the hymn Amazing Grace and his influence on William Wilberforce, but his life and leadership is much richer than that. A.T. Pearson you may not have heard of, but he was a close confidant of D.L. Moody and A.J. Gordon, as well as Charles Spurgeon and George Mueller. He performed Spurgeon's funeral as, and was invited by Mueller's family to write the authorized biography on his life. I think you'll find the interview I did with John Newton and A.T. Pearson worth the read, especially in a book you can get for free. In our final segment, I will often interview an author, a thought leader, or practitioner about a relevant topic, but in this episode, I'm going to share a few lessons I learned about resilience from my historical mentoring relationship with Winston Churchill. 
I mentioned my mentoring relationship with Churchill in the book, Why Dead People Make the Best Mentors, but I didn't really have space to go into any real detail. I sought out Churchill for a mentoring relationship in part because I knew he experienced failures that could have pushed him from the stage permanently, but he bounced back. And I wanted to find out what he could teach me about resilience. One of Churchill's biggest failure moments happened during World War I, when he was serving as the First Lord of the Admiralty or the head of the Navy. Churchill was blamed for a military disaster at the Dardanelles, a narrow strait in northwestern Turkey connecting the Aegean Sea to the Sea of Marmara. Now, every political crisis needs a scapegoat, and Churchill, at age 41, was as good a choice as anyone. Voices were being raised in Parliament that Churchill was not only responsible, but that he had lacked foresight, neglected basic safeguards, overruled his advisors, and even bullied military leaders to get his own way in what turned out to be a failed campaign that resulted in much loss of life. Now, certainly Churchill made mistakes, but this was clearly not the true narrative of what happened, not the complete story, and the Prime Minister knew it. Churchill had actually gone out of his way to ensure the minutes of the War Council documented that he dissented on some decisions that limited the military assets he believed would be required for success in the Dardanelles. It became obvious to Churchill those in power would not take the actions necessary to clear his name. And Churchill was even blamed for mistakes made after his departure from the War Council including for the land war under the supervision of another leader. So Churchill was fired from his position as head of the Navy. And how did he respond? Well, Churchill volunteered to go to the front lines in France to lead a battalion of soldiers. He did this wholeheartedly and with great passion. And here's what he said to his wife Clementine in anticipation of his new post. I hope to come to these men like a breeze. I hope they will rejoice to be led by me and fall back with real confidence into my hands. I shall give them my very best. In speaking about the fiasco that ensued in the War Council, Churchill said, I watch as far as I can the weak and irresolute and incompetent drift of government policy and turn over what ought to be done in my mind and then let it all slide away without a wrench. Well, this was Churchill's way of saying he wasn't going to let things he couldn't control to control him. And so it was off to the front. Well, throughout his life, Churchill had a strong sense of destiny. In fact, once while attending a dinner party, he was talking with the daughter of a leader who would later become prime minister during the time he was the head of the Navy. And she recounted that in the middle of their conversation, Churchill just stared off into space and said, All men are worms, but I do believe I am a glowworm. That's one of my favorite Churchill quotes. All men are worms, but I do believe I am a glowworm. Well, Churchill had this sense of destiny. And while on the front lines in France, he had several experiences where he easily could have died. And 
one occasion, a high-ranking officer, sent for him and asked him to attend a meeting. Churchill left his men and slogged through a rain-soaked field with bullets flying over his head to reach the meeting point. And when he arrived, he was told by a lower-ranking soldier that the general didn't really have an important agenda and that he decided to leave because of the rain and the shelling. Well, Churchill fumed all the way back to his men. And when he arrived, he discovered shortly after he left the meeting for this general a mortar shell landed a few feet from where he was standing, and had he not gone, he would be dead. He wrote to his wife, When I saw the ruin, I was not so angry with the general, after all. And he went on to say, Now see from this how vain it is to worry about things. One must yield oneself simply and naturally to the mood of the game and trust in God. He had another close encounter with death from a mortar shell and wrote again to his wife saying, I am not going to give in or tire at all. I am going on fighting to the very end in any station given to me from which I can most effectively drive on this war to victory. If I were somehow persuaded that I was not fit for a wider scope, I should be quite content here, whatever happened. If I am equally persuaded that my worth lies elsewhere, I will not be turned from it by any blast of malice or criticism. Well, I learned a lot from Churchill about resilience. And there, under the dark cloud of failure on the front lines of France, in World War I, he was being prepared for a wider scope of influence in World War II. Churchill is one of many dead people who have mentored me, and I'm the better for it. If you'd like to cultivate the skill of historical mentoring, subscribe to the Idea Portal, and you'll receive my book as a free gift, Why Dead People Make the Best Mentors. Thanks for joining us on this episode of It's Your Turn, brought to you by Next Leader. You can access the show notes as well as resources mentioned in today's episode on our website, ideas.nextleader.com. And you can subscribe to our idea portal, so you don't miss any of Steve's blog posts, podcasts, or video blogs. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free ebook, Why Dead People Make the Best Mentors, and How to Learn from Them. Until next time, don't sit on the sidelines. It's your turn.